Hi, everybody. If you haven't done so already and you are listening through the link on our website and uh, this is part of the at-home worship process for you, if you're not gathering with us today, I did have a video that I wanted you to watch immediately preceding the sermon. There's a link there uh, in the at-home worship guide. Be sure you watch that first because that sets out a great um it really sets the stage for us to explore this letter and its implication for the Laodicean church. So hit the pause button, go watch that video, and then come back if you haven't done so already. Okay, we're going to be reading from Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So in each message to the seven churches of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, we've seen some patterns develop. Jesus presents himself in a very powerful way to each church, and, and the, his presentation is nuanced in particular ways. Then he offers warnings or challenges, often encouragements. And finally, there's a conclusion to his message with a special promise for those who overcome. And, and the word there really implies just staying faithful to Jesus despite the opposition. Now, Laodicea might be the most famous of the seven letters because of two particular verses. In verse 16, Jesus speaks really strongly against the Laodiceans' lukewarm faith. And verse 20 shows us Jesus knocking on the door of the heart, which is a picture often used in the context of sharing faith or inviting people to faith in Christ. Now, these are really important verses, and we're going to get to them. But there's a lot more going on in this letter than verses 16 and 20. And as we move through this uh, letter, we may just discover that these two verses that have made this um, message to the Laodicean church uh, quite uh, well known even those verses hold levels of meaning that up to this point may have gone either unnoticed or unappreciated. So let's jump in. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. 
Jesus says, I am revealing myself. This little apocalypse comes from the ruler of God's creation. The Greek word there um, can be translated as originator or first cause. Some translations will translate it as beginning, but I don't think that's a good translation because what um, we read, or, or what's at least easy for us to read into the text, if it says, this, these are the words of the beginning of God's creation, is that it can imply that Jesus was created by God the Father instead of being eternally coexistent with the Father. So John chapter 1 and Colossians number one, uh, chapter 1 are instructive here. So in John 1, pretty famous verses, it says, in the beginning was the word. We find out later that the word became flesh. So this is a synonym for Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. And through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then Colossians 1 says, the Son of God is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. And so he's before all things and in Jesus, all things hold together. So when Jesus reveals himself to the Laodicean church, he uses one of the most gripping, powerful, authoritative titles you could use, right? This is right up there with the Alpha and the Omega. I am the source point for all of creation. Everything cosmically is from me, through me, and for me. So then in verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, that video did a really good job in, in a very uh, compact time frame of explaining that because Laodicea was located in the Lycus River um, that would often dry up during uh, heat waves, they had to have their water pumped in uh, th through aqueducts, and they would... Uh, have it um, brought in from uh, Herapolis and uh, Colossae. And uh, what would happen is that hot water from hot springs in Herapolis would uh, start hot there. And by the time five or six miles, they would get to Laodicea, it'd be lukewarm because it would have cooled. But the cool glacier water from a mountain beside Colossae would warm in the Turkish sun. So regardless of where the Laodicean city got their water from, it usually ended up being lukewarm. And because of the material that the pipes were made of, the aqueducts were made of, um, there was often a lot of mineral deposits. And so it would not be uncommon for people trying to drink this water to have at least indigestion, upset stomach, or even they would vomit as a result. So it would even work as an emetic, something that would force you to sort of throw up. Now, traditionally, this picture being lukewarm has kind of defaulted to meaning that the Christianity of this church was characterized by a kind of spiritual coolness, a spiritual posture and lifestyle where 
Jesus's gospel and kingdom were kind of like meh, like not bad. Like I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I believe in that stuff. Um, and if this is what Jesus was speaking against, the implication is that Jesus wants his followers to be, you know, hot on fire passionate, charged, enthusiastic. And one of the things that turns Jesus's stomach is sort of this smug indifference to the things of God, even while we claim the name Christian. And the implication goes one step further, which is that outright denial or complete coldness, which would be understood as hostility towards God, right? Cold water instead of hot water, that Jesus would actually prefer that to kind of a lukewarm, phony piety, where maybe we're going through the motions, we're trying to signal to other people that we're kind of Christian-ish. Jesus says, that's worse than actually being set against me. As one commentator noted, to profess Christianity while remaining untouched by its fire is a disaster. There's more hope for the openly antagonistic than for the coolly indifferent. And the Laodiceans' coolness, understood this way, was a fundamental denial that Christ, who reveals himself as the source and point of all creation, stands for. And so in this reading of this uh, hot, cold, lukewarm um, dynamic, the Laodicean Christianity is something that is kind of neat. It's interesting, but it's not a faith that electrifies one's life. So that's one way to read um, how to interpret this dynamic between hot, cold, and lukewarm. Now, there is an alternative reading, and it's quite strong. But if we don't understand the geographic context of Laodicea, then it, we, it, there's not really an anchor point for us to kind of settle on it. It's not going to make sense to us. The alternative reading says that the point of the rebuke is not principally about zeal or enthusiasm, but it's actually about usefulness, right? The contrast of hot and cold, given the context of Laodicea, is not one of good or bad. They didn't see hot water coming from Hierapolis as good and cold, pure waters of Colossae as bad. They were like, they're both good. They both serve their purposes, the hot water heals and the cold water refreshes. The problem is that lukewarm water does nothing. It's kind of useless. It can only serve as an emetic, as, a, as something which facilitates vomiting. And we have a bit of a cultural parallel there with coffee. There's some people who love hot coffee. But maybe in the summer months, people shift gears and they go all the way to cold brew. They go cold iced coffee. But you know, I don't know anybody in my life who likes lukewarm coffee. It's just gross. And you do want to spit it out of your mouth. And so the church in Laodicea in this reading is really being taken the task not because of zeal primarily, but because of youth, usefulness. They weren't providing refreshment for the spiritual, spiritually weary, but they also weren't providing healing for the spiritually sick. 
the church was just totally ineffective in the context of building for the kingdom of God. And as we'll see in a moment, it was because of their self-sufficiency. They were, they just weren't fruitful. They were, I mean, this might be hard to, to, to say and for us to hear because it sounds so harsh, but Jesus is kind of saying, according to this reading, you're kind of good for nothing because you haven't cultivated a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. So those are the two readings. Now, do we have to choose between those two? Maybe not. I think they both provide a really good gut check for us individually and as a church, right? To the first reading, like, are we passionately devoted to Jesus? I mean, maybe not every day and every moment that, you know, we're not maybe quote unquote on fire, but is there a deep and pervasive and consistent devotional energy which animates our days and weeks. And if not, what's running interference and inhibiting that enthusiasm? Because the Spirit wants us to be longing and hungering for justice and righteousness. And to the second reading, are we as individual Christians, but more importantly, are we as a church good for something? Like, are we having an impact for the kingdom of God? Is our church, from a heavenly perspective, useful and effective and fruitful to the extent that it provides blessings to those around us in this community? Now, as you can see, there are good things to wrestle with through either of these readings. But I actually have come to prefer the second reading, not as true and the first one false, but as the one that we should be primarily thinking through as it relates to us as a church. And there's a few reasons for that. Like I said, no one would have in that first century context understood the polarities of hot and cold to be good and bad. It just would have been useful in one way, useful in another way. So that kind of lends credence to the second verse or sort of second reading that the lukewarmness is about being useless. And I also you know, speaking frankly, when I heard this verse, when I first became a Christian and over the years, I've heard different people teach on it. And what often happens is we can teach on, teach against having a lukewarm faith, being on fire for Jesus. But I don't think a continual, pervasive, hot fervency in the Christian life, I don't think it's possible especially if we understand this as kind of emotional intensity, right? I mean, there's lots of verses in the New Testament that talk about us continuing to walk um, in zeal and enthusiasm. But I think we have to understand this to, to reference the church body as a whole, because I don't know about you, but times of grief and times of acedia, which is kind of a sense of struggle, maybe a mild uh, depression or just suppression as I've been uh, wrestling through things. Um, times of, yeah, just a willingness to serve Jesus in the day-to-day, -day, but I'm not necessarily electrified by it. I'm tired. I'm worn down. These are regular parts of the Christian life. And I think one of the things we see also in the New Testament is this call to endure, this call to persevere. And part of why that call is there is because we're not always going to feel kind of hyper enthusiastic, but we should always be cultivating a, um, 
a prompting, a desire, a willingness to serve God well. And when I look at Jesus interact with his original disciples and apostles, I don't see him constantly harping on them when they aren't um, living and ministering with full enthusiasm. Zeal and enthusiasm, and another way to think about it is that zeal and enthusiasm aren't virtues in and of themselves, right? They need to be directed towards something in order for them to be constructive, in order for them to glorify God and be a blessing to those around us, um, our zeal has to be channeled into something useful. And while zeal and expressions of personal, passionate devotion to Jesus is great, it's only great to the extent that it leads us into living effectively and fruitfully for him. And lastly, I think the last point that I would use to kind of say, I kind of prefer the second reading that what's being condemned here is a lack of usefulness by the church, is that there's no evidence really to suggest that the church was lacking in zeal or confidence. The problem was that they were too self-confident. They'd become self-deluded into thinking that they can do Christianity without Jesus. And in the process, the church had literally shut Jesus out. And as a result, they couldn't receive Jesus's daily power and grace. And therefore, they couldn't minister from Jesus's power and grace. Right in verse 17, look, he says, you say, so he's saying this is something that you guys say amongst yourselves or to the community or to me, uh, whether it's explicitly or implicitly, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing, right? There's this self-sufficiency. There's this arrogance that is born of wealth and lots of economic and cultural privilege. And I want to share with you how deep this runs in the culture of Laodicea as a city. In 60 AD, so about 30, 35 years before the sending of this message, a massive earthquake hit and affected the valley, and Laodicea was destroyed. And according to the Roman emperor Tacitus, Rome, so the government, offered to pay for the city to be rebuilt. But the citizens of Laodicea declined, saying that they were wealthy enough to restore their own city. Massive catastrophe, Nelson burns down with a crazy fire. Government of Canada says, this is an important town. We're not going to let this stay devastated. We're going to pump whatever money it takes into it to see Nelson rise from the ashes. And we get together as a city and say, no, we're good, Government of Canada. We are so rich. We are so self-sufficient. We are so... um, pridefully independent, we'll do this on our own. And that had carried over into their posture as a church, even though they were converted and they were now seeking to serve Jesus, that narrative, I am rich, we've required wealth, we have everything that we need, had in in such a negative way corrupted the spiritual heart of the Laodiceans, right? We've got money. We have it. We're good, Jesus. Thanks a lot. We can take it from here. And Jesus says, you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiful and poor 
and blind and naked. Think about the things that Jesus calls them out on. Being poor and blind and naked. This strikes at the heart of the Laodiceans' sense of self-sufficiency. Because remember, it's known as a banking center and a medical center and a, a, a high-end fashion center. They had this gold exchange and they were the bank banking center for the province of Asia Minor. So they're very rich. And they're the, they're the location of a cutting-edge ophthalmology school that produced eye salve that helped people regain vision. And they had this high-end fashion industry that was driven by this glossy black wool, which they had bred into the sheep there, that was woven into garments called trimata that were prized in the Roman world. So you put these things together, and not only did it mean they were incredibly wealthy as a city and apparently as a church, but they saw themselves as very sophisticated, very elitist, not needing help from other people, completely um, able to be self-contained and self-sufficient. And Jesus says, actually, you're not wealthy or poor. You're not, you're neither nearsighted nor farsighted. You're just no-sighted. You're actually blind and you're naked. You're walking around as if you are uh, fashionable and uh, you're the envy of those who look at you and how you're dressed and you're naked and, and you should be ashamed. And remember, these are Christians, right? This is Jesus in other letters has been very clear when he says, I want to confront these people from the synagogue who claim to be Jews, although they are not. So Jesus has no problem calling out false faith. He doesn't do that with the Laodiceans. These are people who have genuinely turned their lives over to Jesus, but they've allowed the culture, cultural narrative, the cultural story to overtake the kingdom of God story. And they've now tried to live out Christianity through the lens of a um, cultural sophistication and elitism, which literally pushes Jesus to the margins. And I think that's a powerful reminder that just because someone commits themselves to Jesus, growth and maturity is not inevitable. It requires our cooperation. Salvation doesn't. Salvation belongs to God. We can only receive God's gift of salvation, but growth and maturity is something that happens as the Spirit prompts us, empowers us, um, as the Spirit uh, leads us into opportunities for growth, invites us to become aware of sinful patterns and practices in our own hearts, and we say, Yes. Yes. I want to go there. Yes. I need your help. I want to depend on you, God. I want to learn. I want to feast on your word. I want you to show me if there are any unrighteous, false, crooked ways in me. And I want you to begin to sort that out. Show me where I need healing. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And put salve on your eyes so you can see. Again, Jesus is saying, you think you have these things. You actually don't. You're blind and deluded and poor. But I actually have them. And I can give them to you. I can provide these things for you. So he's calling them out of their illusions and their delusions. And saying, you want to be wealthy? I have true wealth. You want to be clothed? 
with what is enviable, I can clothe your character. You want to really be able to see? You want to really be able to understand what's going on? Come to me. I can give you sightedness. And then in verse 19, he drops a line that might be the most important and overlooked truth in this entire passage. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. To rebuke means to convict or to expose something. To discipline means to punish or to train or to educate. So it's not just um, punishment in order to mete out uh, pain or discomfort. It is um, a disciplinary punishment that is meant to achieve a, a particular end of teaching and correcting and guiding. And I say this line might be the most important because it shows us how God loves us, how Jesus loves us, and how Jesus leads us. If we belong to Jesus, one of the dimensions of love that will consistently be a part of our lives is that he will expose our sin to us. And that is often painful. That can be embarrassing. And he also disciplines us, which is equally painful and embarrassing. But he's doing it in order to lead us into the kind of purpose and future that he wants for us. God has an agenda now that we are his in our lives to conform us into the character of Christ, to remove sinful patterns and practices from our, from our lives and to enhance those practices with which are, which are righteous, which are just, which are good, which are life-giving. Hebrews 12.1 12, says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So there's this athletic, athletic picture where we're runners in an Olympic event, and we're being surrounded by uh, people in the faith who have gone before us and they're cheering us on. And we're called to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles. Right? God has a race marked out for you. But sin can cling to our lives and weigh us down. And they disrupt our ability to run that race and to run it well. And so Jesus, like an Olympic-level track coach, is not committed to our comfort as the highest priority. He wants to give us peace, but doesn't always want to make us comfortable. He's committed to our excellence, to our growth, to maximizing our kingdom potential, to help us to live into the person we were designed to be in him. And that means sometimes there's going to be discipline, especially if we ignore what is right and we kind of go it alone and go on our own terms. Proverbs 3.12 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. One of the evidences of my love for my children is that I discipline them. A parent that never disciplines their child is not communicating love to that child. What they're communicating is that they don't care enough about that child to have any expectations or to um, know or to be able to see that child's potential 
um, to either see it and then say, oh, it's too much work to help cultivate that. I can't be bothered. Just, yeah, be, be comfortable, be quote unquote happy, and I'll just remove any kind of coaching, training, education. To wisely, lovingly discipline your child is to communicate them, communicate to them at a very, very fundamental level. You are very important and I'm invested in you and I'm committed to helping you grow into be the version of yourself that you were designed to be. Because I see these gifts and these skills and these talents and this unique uh, constellation of traits that are so unique and God-given. I see the potential God has placed in you and I'm responsible in some ways to help bring that out and to direct it and guide it. And that's how Jesus loves us. His love is a refining love. It's a redeeming love. It's a love that, yes, embraces us as we are, but never leaves us as we are. It's always prompting us to grow, to Get rid of the stuff that's dragging us down and hindering us and entangling us and run the race free and unburdened and unhindered. In verse 20, Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, again, remember, this is not primarily an evangelistic picture where Jesus says, I need to come into the house of your life. This is Jesus saying, you've already given me your life. I'm knocking on the door. This is my house. What you need to do is let me in. This is a request by Jesus for a renewal of fellowship. And the picture is stark because what it displays is that in their self-sufficiency, in their pride, the church in Laodicea had literally locked Christ out. Maybe not out of maliciousness, but functionally they felt completely confident to move through every day, every week, every month without much, um, without really a turning of the heart towards Jesus. There was no conscious dependence on the fact that Without Jesus actively involved in what we're about, we can't accomplish anything for the kingdom. And so he wants them to repent, to turn from that posture, and to experience restored fellowship with him. Isn't it amazing that even, even when it would have been so easy for Jesus to say, oh, you want to be self-sufficient? Okay. I'm, I'm walking away. You shut me out? Okay. But he doesn't, right? At the start of the letter, what does he say? I'm the faithful and true one. I'm going to be true to you even when you're not true to me. It's an amazing picture that shows us the depth of God's love and shows us that it's never too late if you're a wayward Christian. And for whatever reason you have locked Jesus out, he is knocking at the door of your heart. He wants to renew fellowship. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, as we close, I want to come back to verse 18. Notice Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, white clothes to wear, 
salve to put on your eyes. Did you notice that Jesus said, bye? He says, my advice to you, because you're actually poor, miserable, pitiful, blind and naked. Uh, my advice would be to buy from me the things that you actually think you have, but you don't. That they're kind of the counterfeit version. I have the truer and better version of them. How do you buy the spiritual life? Right? Jesus holds what we need, what we're hungering for, what we're thirsty for. And he says, I counsel you to buy those things from me. Which implies there's some kind of a cost, right? If I'm going to buy something, I have to incur a cost in order to access and secure that good. So what is the cost to buying from Jesus the true and better version of all the things that we're looking for? Well, I think the key is found in verse 19. Be earnest and repent. For the Laodiceans, that meant turning from literal self-centeredness, self-sufficiency, and sincerely turning towards dependence on Jesus. Which is a different way of saying the cost is yourself. The cost is your life. In Matthew 16, 25, Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will actually find it. And so if you have never turned away from your self-centeredness and your self-sufficiency and turned towards Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. Because he is the only true and reliable spiritual source for the hungers of your heart. And it can be a simple prayer. It can say, Jesus, I don't understand everything about what it means to embrace you, to follow you. But I feel cut to the heart. I need you. Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you empower me with your love and life? Would you cleanse me? I do feel pitiful and poor and blind and naked on so many different levels, God. And I've been trusting in myself. I want to learn how to, what it means to trust in you. I want to be Jesus-centered, not self-centered. Help me, Jesus. I give my life to you. If you have turned to Jesus, maybe you've prayed a prayer like that sometime in the past. Could be a year ago, could have been a decade ago, could have been a half a lifetime ago. But as life has unfolded, as different developments have shaped and formed your life, you've found yourself slowly turning away from Jesus and leaning more and more on your own understanding, leaning more and more on your own skill set, on even on the talents that God has given you, uh, talents and gifts that are meant to glorify him, but you've just kind of turned them inward to build a life that is self-sufficient and benefits you. And as a result, you've very functionally shut him out of your life. You need to hear Jesus's words to be earnest and repent. That means to sincerely repent. To not just go through them, oh, I'm sorry, God, yeah, I'll try and do better next time. But to be like, the path that I'm on leads to spiritual ruin. And I need to have a literal come back to Jesus moment. 
And that looks like a prayer of repentance and confession saying, this is where I'm at, God. This is all the ways that I have locked you out of either my life completely or certainly in these parts of my life. But I hear you knocking. And I thank you that you haven't given up on me. So would you reestablish that fellowship and that connection? I'm going to turn from my own self-centeredness. I don't even know where it started or how it how that ball got rolling. But I, I, if I take an honest look at my life now, I realize I just don't feel like I need you in so many of the challenges that I face every day. And that is so, such deluded thinking, God. I'm sorry, forgive me. Renew in me a right spirit. Because I believe that only you can be the source of water, that can bring refreshment and healing to me and through me to others. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you remember Jesus loves you enough to discipline you. May you hear Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. And may you open the door and allow him to heal and refresh you so that you can be a source of his blessing and life to those where he sends you this week. May the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen.